And then, all of a sudden, there was a big burst of smoke. And my yes, first did. thought was, my God, we're going to burn up, blow up, or something like that. A private airplane in trouble, a forced crash landing, a brush with death. We've all heard about vacations from hell. This one involves a dramatic flying adventure, international intrigue, government cover-ups you won't believe. Really, I was ticked off, and that's a mild expression for it. And a tropical island paradise with a seedy secret. This place looked like a small war had taken place. It also involves a return, a reunion of sorts, plus one of the most remarkable lost and found stories ever told. Like many true stories, uh, the truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. Throw into the mix a legendary drug lord. Carlos later is considered, you know, the Henry Ford of transportation, uh, you know, where it comes to drug smuggling. As mentioned briefly in episode one, a remote controlled airfield of all things would be the starting point for May Kay's journey into the world of drug smugglers, cocaine kingpins, and Norman's Key. When you look at how many things had to go just right for this story to ever be discovered and told, it's a minor miracle. There are so many sliding doors moments that that could have been the title of this podcast. I digress, back to the story. After May Kay's student Robert made a suggestion that they make a pit stop, this stopover at the RC airfield would alter the course of her entire life. So I take my son out there, and little did we know, he was 12 at the time, this would change his life and my life because he evolved into a world-renowned RC airplane pilot and now an air show pilot, full-scale pilot, aerospace engineer. It was a wonderful turning point in our lives. And while I was there every weekend while he was training, I was talking to different folks and I met this gentleman who was an elderly gentleman. And he said, oh yeah, M.A.K., I know you fly. I used to fly too. And I said, oh, you don't fly anymore. No, no, he said, uh, we crashed our airplane in the Bahamas. What? <laughs> I go, what, what do you mean? Turns out back in 1981, he and his wife and another couple from North Carolina, my hometown, were participating in the Bahamas treasure hunt. This was a tourism thing that the Bahamas does to bring private pilots down there, go to different islands and win prizes. So they were on their way to Georgetown, Exuma, Bahamas, when they developed engine trouble. So Dick and his wife, that's a gentleman I was speaking to, Dick and his wife, Jean, and um, Dempsey and his wife, Vi, were on their way when all of a sudden there's smoke in the cockpit and things start running rough and going wrong. And they go, oh my God, we need to land. Now they're over water. And they look down and the closest, the closest island is Norman's Key. It happens to have a runway. Now, Dick said he did remember in the back of his mind while everybody is freaking out and scared and trying to do checklists, that there was something associated with this island in the news that you were supposed to steer clear of it. But look, we're in an emergency. It's close. There's a runway. Let's go. Dempsey was an ace Air Force pilot. He's flying. Dick is in the right seat. They turn toward Norman's Key. They still have the engine. It's running rough, smoke in the cockpit. And then all of a sudden, the engine quits. Now they're a glider, and they've got to glide to this runway. <laughs> so they line up on final approach, and... Um, Dick said that Dempsey said to him, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. And Dick said, I know. 
and they're kind of limping in and at the last minute an airplane pulls out on the runway and it's just this primitive runway on this little island and blocks the runway it's a twin engine uh seneca piper seneca and and there it is it's blocking the end of the runway and it's not like a big international airport where you can go to another runway or right. land on a taxiway there are no taxiways so they go holy moly what the hell you know so they're gliding, they run out of power, and they crash land at the edge of the runway where the water, you know, meets the coral rock ledge of the runway. Hard landing, uh, broken backs, broken jaws, their injuries, and they remember the airplane taking off. Okay. So next thing they know, some Bahamian young men run down to help rescue them and get them out of the airplane. And then eventually this other airplane that took off is told to come back pick up the crash survivors and take them to Nassau to a hospital. One of the gentlemen, I, I believe it was Dempsey, said to me, Dempsey wasn't injured that bad and he was able to walk around and he remembered seeing somebody he thought was Carlos later. After much research, I don't think it was. But he, he thought later on, oh, I think that was Carlos later. They went back to Nassau and when they got to Nassau, to the hospital and they're in these hospital rooms, an ambassador, U.S. ambassador, comes to see them, Maria Vasquez, and she says to them, don't ask questions. We're going to get you back home to North Carolina, but you're never to tell anybody what happened here. It was just all very mysterious. They thought, what? Mm -hmm. Anyway, they end up going home, and years later, it was years till they found out that at the time, Norman Ski was the epicenter of the world's largest drug operation at the time, a transshipment center transferring drugs from Colombia to the United States via Norman's Key. So it was just an incredible story. So Dick was telling me this story and I really didn't know anything about this going on in the early 80s, the late 70s. I was a young woman in television sowing my wild oats, you know, and, but I always loved the islands. I was an island girl, so I was intrigued. I studied it, I researched it, and I thought, wow. And I said, Dick, what happened to your airplane? He said, well, we don't know. I mean, you know, it was in pieces and we don't know whatever happened to it. So now it's 21 years later. And I say, well, let's go find it. And that's exactly what May Kay did. You'll learn through the course of our story that can't do isn't something in our heroine's verbal catalog. Now, she didn't have her own airplane, but as she says, she had a lot of spunk and gumption. And this is how she was able to get them an aircraft to go search for Dick and Jean's precious whiskey. May Kay, Dick, Jean, and RJ set off on their adventure to Norman's Key in a medevac aircraft with hopes to find answers for the crash victims. They would also pick up author Sidney Kirkpatrick along the way. Because it was a small plane, they would have to make a few refueling pit stops along the way. First was Hilton Head Island, and next was Palm Beach International. The airport at Norman's Key closes at dark, so the group stayed the night at a nearby island and arrived at Norman's Key the next morning. Norman's Key was just breathtakingly beautiful, and we brought Sidney Kirkpatrick in. So Sidney wrote a book called Turning the Tide, and it's about Richard Novak, Richard Novak was a professor from New England who was really into scuba diving and marine life. And, and somehow he ended up down on Norman's Key and wanted to participate in, in studies of marine life. 
So he was kind of down there when some of the drug smuggling operations were going on, and he thought, what the hell is going on here? He didn't like it, and he kind of started working kind of in an unofficial undercover way, unofficial undercover. And so the book is kind of about his adventures that Sidney wrote. Makey went to Norman's Key to assist Dick and Jean in their research for their precious whiskey, but she also had a documentary in mind. As soon as they landed, her son RJ started working with the camera equipment he had packed. This would become the documentary film, Return to Norman's Key. I'm going back because I want to finish the trip we started 21 years ago. Uh, There have been many lingering questions uh, over the years. November 2003. North Carolinians Dick and Jean Facey were going back to Norman's Key, the very island that played center stage for their personal vacation from hell, nearly claiming their lives back in 1982. They will meet up with island expert Sidney Kirkpatrick, who will piece together the biggest puzzle of their lives. They crash landed uh, towards the end of the drug smuggling operations on Norman's and had they arrived six months a year earlier, they probably wouldn't have lived to leave the island. So I was inspired to make the documentary Return to Norman's Key because of the story Dick Facey told me. He was the commercial pilot who had flown down there, you know, 21 years ago and lost their precious airplane. They nicknamed the airplane Whiskey, 3244 Whiskey. Uh, that was the tail number, and he just loved the plane, and we, we pilots love our planes. I love every airplane I've ever flown. I do, and so I, I understood his longing to find the airplane, and I thought, well, heck, let's go down. I'll fly you down. You know, I'm a current pilot, and I'll fly you down, and uh, we took RJ with us, who shot the documentary, Dick and his wife, Jean, and we loaded up a V-tail Bonanza, which happened to be one of Jack's favorite planes. It, it was just a thrill of flying into that island and we stayed in these old villas that have since been refurbished that you could look on the website mcduff's on norman's key and they're just beautiful they've all been redone i'm sure it's very pricey to stay there now back in the day it wasn't it was just a thrill and and we all would go searching you know for his lost airplane and we interviewed sydney kirkpatrick and at another time i interviewed heidi novak heidi the daughter of um, Dick Novak or Richard Novak. Um, we became good friends and she loves the island. And we, I've visited the island several times with her and I've gone back several times on my own just for my own research. But anyway, during that initial trip, there were some people on the island that helped us look through other airplane wreckage and other you know, areas of the island where there was a lot of bush or Um, overgrown plants looking for the airplane and we figured the airplane probably was in the water next to the um, rock ledge where they crashed at the end of the runway and my son and Sydney went snorkeling looking for wreckage of the plane didn't find anything and after a couple days we didn't find anything and it was time for me to fly Sydney back to Nassau so he could catch an airliner back to California And then R.J. and I flew the little Bonanza back to Norman's, and we just had a day or two left on our own. And one of the island residents came up and said, hey, 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 we we found some wreckage we think you should look at. We we want you to look at it. We go, really? Okay, because we'd pretty much given up. 
and uh, Dick and Jean and my son and I and, and these folks, we all got together and we went down to the end of the runway and we hung a left and then another left and there were all these mangroves and overgrown and there you see this wreckage. Pieces of the fuselage, pieces of the airplane, um, you know, decades of hurricanes and wind and sun and it was probably thrown back up on the beach and it's just pieces here and there. So it's not like an intact airplane, okay? So Dick starts looking around and it goes, oh my God, that's where we repainted the airplane. You could see where the original color was and where they had repainted over it. And then um, uh, Jane says, oh my God, there's the seatbelt. There's a piece of the seatbelt because of the seatbelt, you know, whiskey saved our lives from dying in, in the crash. And it was just very sentimental. And we're pretty sure that, yeah, th this is the airplane. They recognize pieces of it. And then finally, we find a piece of the airplane with the serial number on it, the plate of the serial number of the airplane. So that's going to positively identify it for us. And sure enough, it was Whiskey's serial number. Oh my God, it was so cool. I'm sorry. It was just so cool. It was so cool. And, and Dick got emotional, and he says, it is, it's, it's, it's my plane, it's my plane. And it just, uh, I still have a piece of it in, in, the, in the other bedroom here at my home. Um, you know, we took a few souvenirs of the airplane. It's all gone now because um, developers have come in and cleaned up the whole island. So what's left of whiskey is long gone, but, um, and Dick is gone, Dick has passed, and Gene has passed. And Dempsey and Vi, who I interviewed for that um, documentary, they've died. And they were all very close to me. They became surrogate parents to me and surrogate grandparents to my son. We shared just an incredible adventure. And um, who, knew, who knew where that would lead? And then with Jack Reed. And it, it, there's just so much that fate and destiny had a hand in this. It's just amazing. I just, it's, it's amazing. While her adventure helping Dick and Jean locate whiskey had come to an end, May Kay's journey into Norman's Key and its history was just beginning. Whether it was the beauty of the island or the stories that locals told her about Norman's past inhabitants, May Kay was hooked. She had to know more about not only the island, but the legendary figure that ran the drug operation, Carlos Lader. She would pen a letter to Carlos in prison, but there was only one problem. Later, it testified against the corrupt former dictator of Panama, Manuel Noriega. Despite being a prison inmate, he was in the Federal Witness Protection Program. Locating later wouldn't be an easy task. That eventually led me to want to know more about Carlos Later, the drug lord on the island. And there was a lot of folklore about a Jack Reed. He had a young girlfriend. And people love to tell those stories. They thought he was a test pilot. Turns out he was not a test pilot, but he was a well-known race car driver. He's in the Smithsonian. You know, pretty cool record-breaking pilot. I never cared about Jack Reed. You know, who's Jack Reed? And he had a sexy girlfriend. Okay, who cares? So I tried to reach out to Carlos and, you know, by then he could not talk to the media. 
normal people couldn't find out where he was. He had been in Marion, Illinois, and then later I found out he went to Florida. But I couldn't reach him. Wrote letters about Norman Ski. Dear sir, just want to know, do you remember that? I deliberately blocked the, the uh, runway because people thought, oh, that runway was blocked on purpose to keep you people away. And the ambassador was to tell Dick and Jean and Dempsey and Vi in the hospital that he, there was going to be a sting operation. Later they found out on the island to bust the drug operation. I don't know about that. This was like in 81 and really the drug operation was between 78 and 80. So I, I couldn't get in touch with Carlos and I thought, well, I'm just curious what the heck, let's give Jack Reed a shot. So I researched Jack Reed. I find out he's in FCI Memphis serving a life sentence. I thought, wow, what did he do to serve a life sentence? It's gotta be a bad guy. But I reached out and I wrote a letter and hi, I'm a fellow pilot. I'm a producer of Return to Norman's Key, the documentary. And we're just wondering if, you know, I can talk to you a little bit about it. And I wrote that letter, I think it was in August of 2007. And months go by and there's no response. And, and in the back of my mind, I'm realizing, oh, this man never wrote me back. Mm -hmm. Oh, well. So now it's around Christmas. And here comes this letter in the mail from Jack Reed, FCI Memphis, Federal Correctional Institute. I thought, oh my, Jack Reed wrote, hmm. So I open the envelope and I read the letter and the letter is in the book. It's in the back of the book. And he says, dear Miss Beeler, I am so sorry for not writing you back sooner. He was so polite. He was such a gentleman. Um, I, I was just impressed by how polite he was. And he kept apologizing. And he said, um, immediately upon opening your letter, and I think I had a picture of Norman's key and us in the airplane on Norman's. Mm -hmm. And he said, I immediately saw the first sentence that you were interested in Norman's key. And I just put it back in the envelope and I stuck it under my mattress. I have no interest in talking about Norman's Key. I have been contacted by movie producers and authors and law enforcement over the years. I have no interest. I have not told my story to anyone. I'm not gonna tell it now, but thank you for reaching out. And I'm so sorry. I was so rude and not answering you till now. Good luck with your flying adventures. Jack Reed. Huh, I thought, okay, well, hmm. Whatever, and I threw I threw the letter down, actually, and honestly, I said, screw you. Then, within seconds, swear to God, can't make this stuff up. Hopefully, you have a voice of reason, we all do. And my voice of reason said to me, you must write him back. You need to write him back. Uh, write him back? Why would I want to write him back? He's just told me he's not going to reveal anything about the cartel. He's not interested. He was now interested in his artwork and literary projects. So I'm not going to write him back. But it was a very strong feeling. Voice of reason, whatever, write him back. So, all right, what the hey? I write him back and I say, thank you for your note. I totally respect the fact you don't want to talk about it. Sorry to bother you. I don't know why, but I feel led to write you back. Who the heck knows why? He writes me back and eventually reveals he had a feeling I had to do something with his freedom doesn't know me from Adam's house cat because I had this feeling. So we started exchanging letters about flying adventures. He's a pilot, I'm a pilot. 
let's talk about your flying. He started telling me stories and then more and more and more and my jaw dropped and they were fascinating and I asked for more stories and then eventually they led into the smuggling stories. Right. Okay. Now he's kind of revealing things about his past in the cartel and revealing more and more and uh, you know we wrote over a hundred letters to each other over this time period. Mayke may not have realized it at the time, but once she picked up that letter off the floor and wrote back to Jack Reed, she'd officially passed the point of no return. She would soon be given the job of Jack Carlton Reed's official biographer and would become the most important person in his life going forward. Next time on Glamour Professions. 